Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, my name is Rachel Rosenthal. I love learning Mishnah because it gives us real insight into how the Torah became the Judaism we have today. Mishnah really gives us a foundation to understand the core principles and laws of rabbinic Judaism, whether they are laws that we still keep today or whether they're laws that don't apply at this moment in time. The Masechet, or Tractate, of Zvachim falls into the second category. The word Zvachim means sacrifices, which is also the topic of our Masechet. Zvachim is the first Masechet of the Seder, or order, of Kadoshim, which is about sanctity and all the ways that the Jews served God in the times of the Mishkan, or the Tabernacle, and the time of the Beit HaMikdash, or the Temple. Specifically, it focuses on sacrificing animals and the proper procedure for doing so. The Mishnah here doesn't talk about which animals are brought for which sacrifices. Those topics tend to come up in other Masechtot relating to the reasons that they are being brought. Instead, it's really about procedure. Questions considered include, how are the animals prepared? What makes them invalid? What makes them valid? Where are they brought? When are they brought? The Mishnah here is primarily responding to laws in Sefer Vayikra, where the bulk of mitzvot about sacrifices are found. The challenge of Vayikra is that there is no system or order for cataloging and tracking all of these laws. Part of what the Mishnah does in this Masechet, then, is take those laws from the Torah, synthesize them, and organize them according to topic. As I said before, Zvachim is the first Masechet of Kedoshim. Kedoshim, in general, deals with things that have been sanctified. The sanctification applies to sacrifices, but it applies to many other things as well. Things like firstborn children, kosher food and unkosher food, which is specifically not sanctified and therefore is called chulin, and the sanctification of people and spaces. So in light of these diverse topics, it's interesting that we start with sacrifices. The reason for this is primarily logistical. The Seder is arranged according to the number of chapters in each Masechet, and Zvachim, with 14 chapters, is the longest. But as we will see, I think this Masechet also has certain notions that can be expanded to explain the Seder as a whole, and many of which can be applied to our lives today, even though we no longer make sacrifices or have a Beit HaMikdash. It can also offer us a framework to think about the issues of holiness and lack of holiness in our own lives as I said, Zvachim contains 14 chapters. Because it is so long, rather than summarizing each chapter, I'm going to discuss some of the major concepts that come up throughout the Masechet. The first topic I'd like to consider is the one of intention. What happens, for example, if the person bringing a korban meant to make one type of sacrifice, but the priest offers it as another type of sacrifice? Or what if the person offering the sacrifice purposely does part of his procedure incorrectly? Questions about intention manifest in two ways, as we saw in the examples I just offered. The first question is things that are done or not done, lishman, or for their own sake. The second category are things that are done bemazid, intentionally incorrectly, or bishogeg, incorrectly but by accident. These categories are distinct, as the lishma question is only about whether the sacrifices are valid, whereas the shogeg and mezid categories are about whether the offerer is liable for some sort of punishment. However, they both point to similar sorts of concerns. First, why and how you do something matters. 
whether you are doing something correctly or whether you are doing something incorrectly, those are factors that we have to take into account. Secondly, the halachic system is inclined to take into account the idea that people are imperfect. And therefore, whenever possible, it is preferable to avoid burdening members of the community for errors that were committed in good faith. The second category that I would like us to consider that comes through this masachet has to do with the different elements of offering a sacrifice. Even a cursory learning of zvachim shows how many steps there are to offering a sacrifice, and therefore, how many things could go wrong. For example, an animal has to be designated properly, it has to be slaughtered properly, its blood has to be collected and then redistributed properly, and it has to be burned or consumed at the appropriate time. Especially important throughout this masachet is dam, or blood. Perhaps this is surprising, because the focus is on the removal of blood, as the blood itself is never contained as part of the offering. In fact, in the Torah, God commands Bnei Israel to never consume blood because the blood is the source of life in all living things, both people and animals. Therefore, it seems that blood is deserving of extra care because it is the source of life. And in fact, the Mishnah highlights this idea in chapter after chapter. It is concerned with the blood being sprinkled properly, the correct number of times, and in the correct places. In this way, the Mishnah highlights the degree to which all the elements of the sacrifice are important. Even the parts that are not specifically part of the offering that are burnt up or consumed are strictly governed, as we see here. This notion also comes up through the Mishnah's ongoing analysis of the categories of pigul and notar. Pigul is a sacrifice that is rejected due to improper intention at the time of the sacrifice. This harkens back to our first category of intention, the idea that sacrifices need to be brought with the right thoughts in mind, and if they are not, they are often invalid. Pigul can come to be in a few different ways. A sacrifice can be offered by the wrong person. It can be done while the person who is making the offering has improper thoughts, especially those relating to idolatry. The person making the sacrifice can even intend to consume it in an improper place. Even this renders the sacrifice pigul. Notar, which often comes in harmony with pigul, is a sacrifice that is left over, meaning it is not consumed in the proper time frame. Notar needs to be burnt up completely, and if it is consumed, the person who consumes it receives the punishment of karit, being cut off by heaven. The Mishnah considers many different iterations of how transgressing these principles, the laws about blood, pigul, and notar, might work. And again, we see this issue of intention coming up. There are two things to consider. Number one, is the sacrifice itself rendered invalid? And number two, is there a punishment that must be levied in addition to the invalidating of the sacrifice? There's no single answer to these questions. Instead, as we read through the Mishnayot, what we see is how much these issues are circumstantial and based on the exact specific details of each case. And this speaks in many ways to the role of Mishnah in the tradition while relating to Torah. What the Mishnah does is it takes the Torah's categories, its permissions, and its prohibitions, it expands them, and then it better defines them. On this note, we get to our third category, that of categorizations. Categorizations take place in a number of different ways. There are the types of sacrifices. There are the reasons that sacrifices are offered. There are individual sacrifices versus communal sacrifices. There are the locations where the sacrifices are offered, and based on those locations, different levels of holiness that are ascribed to different types of offerings. 
For example, in Parake, chapter 5, there's an extensive conversation simply listing each type of sacrifice, what reason there is for it, where in the Beit HaMikdash it is offered, who should offer it, and what the proper procedure is to be followed in order to make the sacrifice in its ideal form. Following this, in Perak Vav, chapter 6, there's corresponding choreography. What are the steps involved in doing all of this properly? Finally, we reach the fourth category. What happens when things go wrong, and how do they go wrong? One way that things go wrong relates to what we saw above. People do things incorrectly, whether intentionally or not. They have improper intention. The animal is slaughtered in an improper way. Sacrifices get mixed up with each other or with food that has not been sanctified. Pure things get mixed up with impure things, etc., etc. However, sometimes things go wrong for reasons that have nothing to do with human error. For example, it turns out, after slaughtering it, that the animal had been ill and thus would be invalid as a sacrifice. And what we see here are competing values. The most important thing to the Mishnah is not offering things that are invalid because they risk contaminating the altar, which then would not be able to be used for future sacrifices. Additionally, anything that has already been designated for God or for the Beit HaMikdash cannot simply be unsanctified. However, there's also an understanding here that sacrifices are expensive, and for many people, bringing an animal would be a significant financial burden. Therefore, there's a desire to avoid wasting a sacrifice and imposing an undue financial burden, if at all possible. What we see here is the need to consider different sides of such a situation and a desire to figure out if the sacrifice can be rescued rather than just disposing of anything that turns out to be less than ideal. Ultimately, certain standards cannot be ignored, but the Mishnah points to the importance of creativity and flexibility in bidiyeved, or after-the-fact, situations. Our last principle are general principles of sacrifices, not about the animals themselves, but about how to think about them. Here are some of the general rules that come out through Masachet Zvachim. First, things that are elevated in holiness, from ordinary to holy, or from the ordinary state of holiness to the holiest of the holy, usually cannot be returned to their previous, less sanctified state. This is true for sacrifices and for any of the vessels that might have been used for the Beit HaMikdash. Secondly, common sacrifices are to be done before uncommon sacrifices. This is perhaps counterintuitive. Maybe we would think that those that are designated only for a particular moment in time would take precedence, but the Mishnah tells us that this is not the case. Third, Things that are of higher levels of holiness take precedence over things of lesser levels of sanctity. Fourth, people must be in a proper state of purity before offering or taking part in the offering of sacrifices. And finally, sacrifices must be offered in their proper place and not outside of the Beit HaMikdash. This shows us the holiness of the space. Sacrifices, unlike prayer, are not an individual action, and therefore they cannot be done wherever whenever, and for whatever reason. We will now turn to learning a Mishnah together. The Mishnah I would like us to consider comes from the last chapter, chapter 14, Mishnah 4, Mishnah Dalad. In the second half of chapter 14, the Mishnah discusses the evolution of Jewish sacrifice throughout history. I happen to particularly love these Mishnayot 
because they become a way to trace the transition of the community from being built around a group of individuals to being fully communally oriented. As buildings like the Mishkan and the Beit HaMikdash are built and consecrated, B'nai Yisrael are no longer permitted to make their own offerings wherever and whenever they wish. The first step in this process is the building of the Mishkan, as we hear about in Mishnah Dalad. The Mishnah says, Ad shalohu kam ha-mishkan, hayu ha-bamot mutarot, ve'avodah be-bechorot. Before the tabernacle was constructed, the bamot, which are personal altars permitted only during certain periods of Jewish history and only for certain types of offerings, those bamot were permitted and the sacrifices were performed by the firstborns, because at this moment in Jewish history, there are not yet any koanim, any priests. The Mishnah continues, once the tabernacle was constructed, the bamot were forbidden and the services were performed by the koanim. The holiest of the sacrifices, the holy of the holies, were eaten within the tabernacle curtains and the kodashim kalim, the things of ordinary sanctification, were eaten anywhere in the camp of Israel. This Mishnah presents the delicate balance that comes from worshiping as part of a community. On one hand, it is important to have room for personal spiritual experiences, which back then happened primarily through sacrifice. However, it is also important to have communal norms and experiences. What it means to be part of a community is to have certain structures put in place that people have to abide by. Interestingly, as the Mishnayot following this Mishnah show, this process of transitioning from the individual to the communal is not purely linear. Instead, permissions are granted depending on the status of the community, their primary location, and the general communal reality in a given moment. So what we see is that when we think about our individual needs versus the needs of the community, there's no such thing as a universal rule. Instead, the halakha changes and evolves in every moment, as is necessary, based on what the reality is in that moment. And in fact, this is true today as well. It is hard at first glance to find the relevance in Masechet Zvachim. After all, we live in a world with no Beit HaMikdash and no sacrifices. However, the messages relate to the same questions we ask today. How do we value our own spiritual needs versus those of the community? What happens when we cannot master the proper intention to do our spiritual work? And what happens when we have made mistakes and we worry that they might be unfixable? Zvachim reminds us that our own spiritual needs are important as long as we don't see them as exclusively important, independent of the communal experience. Additionally, our intentions are key, sometimes more so than our actions, and so we should think carefully instead of assuming that whatever is in our minds doesn't matter as long as we seem to be doing the right thing. And finally, as long as those intentions are good, there is almost always a tikkun, a repair, available to make things better. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.